I speak in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please do sit. And we're going to be thinking about that passage in 1 Corinthians that Andrea read for us a few minutes ago. It's on page 1251 in the Bibles, and you'll get so much more from what I'm going to say if, I, uh, if you have that open, partly because really my job is not to spout my own stuff, um, but to, uh, to expound, which is another word to, to explain, to open up this text. Um, and to the extent that I do it faithfully, um, then praise the Lord. If I don't, then you've got the text open and you can tell me. So, that's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 6. The Corinthian church um, was obsessed with brilliant public speakers. There's a picture of one there. The brilliant public speaker, these were the celebrities of the day who could move crowds with their brilliant oratory, their verbal skill, and their displays of wisdom. Now, it was all a bit of a hangover, that, from the Corinthian culture that the church had not yet quite shaken off. They had inherited it. Um, so the church in Corinth was gifted, it was energetic, but its growth in the faith was hindered because it was so obsessed with this, uh, this whole sort of uh, culture of status and celebrity that they picked up from their local area. Now you might remember, if you've been here the last few weeks, that the Corinthian Christians, um, they basically thought that the Christian preachers were like these kind of um, uh, these kind of orators here. And so they had got into the habit of idolizing different preachers, um, choosing the one that they thought was the wisest and the best. And as a result, they were dividing into lots of different parties. You know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, and so on. So how do you solve a problem like the Corinthian church, where these deep cultural habits are stunting their growth in Jesus? Well, Paul begins this letter, because we're still early on in what's a long letter, he really begins it, and we saw it a couple of weeks ago, the last time we were in 1 Corinthians, um, he begins by dismantling their highest value, which was wisdom. There are certain words in certain cultures that sort of take on a kind of mythical status, and everybody wants them, so, you know, diversity, equality, inclusion, Ooh, these are the buzzwords of now. But then it was wisdom. And so they had their own vision of what wisdom was. Every age has these buzzwords, these great concepts that grip people's minds. Well, the Corinthians were obsessed with wisdom. The wisdom of their favorite speakers. Um, and uh, they, they also, of course, were pleased with their own wisdom because they chose the wisest speaker. So they sort of reckon themselves great connoisseurs of wisdom. And uh, wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. And two weeks ago, we saw how Paul basically dismantles this kind of worldly one-upmanship wisdom. He absolutely squashes it. And uh, he shows that by basically saying, look, God's wisdom God's real, real wisdom, true wisdom, was displayed in an event that to worldly wisdom looks absolutely ridiculous. That is the cross. So to worldly wisdom, the cross is foolish, even sort of horrible, despicable. So it's so ironic, isn't it? The world is too, in inverted commas, wise 
who appreciate God's true wisdom, which serves actually to show just how foolish worldly wisdom really is. That was what we did a couple of weeks ago. So he's dismantled, Paul has dismantled worldly wisdom. But in today's section, really, Paul, he's doing a bit of rebuilding. He redefines, or rather, he defines properly what wisdom really is, true wisdom. He redefines true wisdom in the light of the cross. So the thing is, what we saw a couple of weeks ago was Paul slaps down worldly wisdom so hard that we might think, oh, well, Paul's a bit of a thicko. He kind of delights in being a little bit, you know, you know, I don't know much, but I've got an opinion like that. No, he's not like that. He does speak wisdom, real wisdom, intelligible, intelligent, clear, sensible wisdom. And he wants to be clear that he does speak this real wisdom. So look, verse 6, that's how he begins. He says, look, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the ruler of this age who are coming to nothing. The rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. See, real Christian wisdom, the wisdom of God. What is it? What is this message? How can human beings come to know it? How can we grow mature in it? That's another word that Paul uses, isn't it? Their wisdom among mature, mature. That was probably another one of these buzzwords that they had, like wisdom, mature. It was one of these, another one of their words that they loved. And he's sort of restructuring it with, with proper meaning. How can we grow mature in this wisdom? How can we learn to appreciate it, to love it, to live it? Well, that's what Paul is really explaining in this passage. And I'm going to divide the passage into two. So if you just glance at it, it helps just to get a map in your head. Um, how do we come to know this message of wisdom? Well, verses 6 to 9, first of all, it's historically revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. And then the rest of the passage, verse 10 to, to 16, um, it is revealed personally by the Spirit of God. So 6 to 9, it's revealed historically in the cross of Christ. 10 to 16, it's revealed personally by the Spirit of God. Don't worry, we'll come back and go over that again, but that's basically our plan. By the way, do you see how those two things work together, the historic and the personal? See, God reveals the wisdom publicly in history on a hill outside Jerusalem in around 33 AD. And yet, without personal revelation of the significance of that event by the Holy Spirit to our hearts and minds, that historic event makes no sense to us whatsoever. And that's what we're going to explore. God's public revelation in history through the Son of God works together with God's personal revelation to each believer through the Spirit of God. That's where we're going. So how do we come to know the wisdom of God? First then, here on the screen there, it is historically revealed in the cross of Christ. Verses 7 to 8. No, says Paul, we don't speak dying worldly wisdom. Rather, he says, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it because if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So there's a huge sweep in this passage from before time began to the glories of new creation and eternal future. Before time began, God plans to give a glorious eternal life to all who love and trust him. But the plan, if you think about it, when Paul is writing this in about 4950 AD, that plan had only been accomplished about 17 years earlier. 
Isn't that extraordinary to think about? For thousands of generations, yes, it had been hinted to by the prophets of the Old Testament, but for thousands of generations, this had been hidden, unknown, unknown. So this is the mystery. In the, in the Bible, a mystery means a, it doesn't mean something that's just too hard to figure out. It means a truth that was hidden but has now been revealed and disclosed. It has now been disclosed, this mystery, that the Messiah, the Savior, came to offer his life. God himself in the person of his son. God himself to bear God's own judgment against sinful humanity. The righteous one standing in place of the unrighteous to bring the unrighteous to God as a gift. And so the thing was that when it finally did take place, hardly anybody knew what was happening. Hardly anybody got it. The rulers of this age, the political, the religious authorities who condemned Jesus, what did they see? A troublemaker, a despicable um, upstart. Well, that's how foolish worldly wisdom is. You see, every political calculation, every religious calculation said it was better to kill him, yet he was the Lord of glory. He was the Lord of glory, glorious in himself, and uniquely qualified to give glory to all who receive him. See, just think about that, how wise God's plan is, how powerful that he can arrange for the very people who are acting with all their might against him to serve him. Infinite wisdom. Now, you may be new to the Christian faith or relatively new or searching for it. Again, let me underline this because it's so vital um, and it's easy to sort of to, to miss. We've got, we need to get this clear. Jesus' death was not an accident was not an accident. In fact, quite the opposite. It stands at the very center of God's wise, powerful, loving plan for the world. Because it's through the cross, and only through the cross, that the living God, our creator, reaches out to forgive, to reconcile, to welcome everybody who comes to him through faith in Jesus Christ and him crucified on that cross. So, that's where real wisdom is revealed. Worldly wisdom, it can't see it at all, as illustrated by those rulers who crucified Jesus. God's wisdom was right there in front of them. They couldn't see it. See, it, it's like staring at one of those dotty pictures. I don't know if I've got one there. I don't know. Can I just say that I don't think there is a hidden thing in that picture? I don't think there is, so don't even try looking. If there is a hidden thing, then... I always look at those things, you know these pictures, and people say, you know, there's a picture in there. And I'm looking at it going, well, I can't see one. I can never see the picture in the, pic in the, in the dots. Well, I honestly don't think there is one in there, so, so I don't want to, to have anybody come in and say, what was it? Because I actually don't think there is one. I just found a dotty pattern and put it on the screen. But I'm like, I can never see them. I can just see the mess. And that was, that was the rulers of this age. That's worldly wisdom when it comes to the cross of Christ. But when it comes to the cross and the glory it brings um, for those who, um, who trust in, 
the humbling thing is, the really humbling thing about the cross is that, is that actually no human being is capable of seeing it by their own ingenuity. None of us are capable of seeing the meaning of the cross by our own insight. We just can't do it. It's not just the rulers of this age. It's me as well. I can't see it either in my natural state, nor can you. I'm completely ignorant. We might as well be... Um, we might as well be dead people trying to enjoy a, you know, we're trying to run the Olymp compete in the Olympic decathlon. It can't be done. We just cannot fathom God's wisdom at the cross by our own insight. So verse 9 makes that so clear. It's one of a series of verses actually in this part of 1 Corinthians, all from the Old Testament, which just emphasize human ignorance in the face of God's wisdom. Look, this couldn't be clearer. Verse 9, no eye has seen. No ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So Jesus' death on the cross is an event that is simply too mysterious, too wonderful for us to fathom. Its eternal outcome for those who trust in it is too amazing to grasp. But... And here we come to our second section of our exploration. Verse 10. God has revealed it to us by his spirit. How do you gain true wisdom and grow mature in it? Well, his wisdom was revealed in history at the cross. But here's the second thing. We can only grasp the meaning of that event as God reveals it to us personally by his spirit. And that is what is explained in verses 10 to 16. This is a very, very deep section indeed. Lots of the great theological writers through church history have spent, have written pages and pages plumbing the depths of this. Deep being the word. Look at verse 10. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. In other words, the Spirit of God knows God. Why? Well, God is... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, existing in three persons. Each person is as fully divine as the others because they possess the one divine nature. They're one in will, one in knowledge. So no wonder the Holy Spirit knows the deep things of God because he shares God's very being. I love Paul's analogy in verse 11. That stresses just how deeply the Spirit of God knows the thought of God. Just look, look at that verse 11. It's, it's, a, it's not a full analogy. It's like all analogies. It has its limits. But it makes a very powerful point. He says, for who among people knows a person? Who knows a person's own thoughts except that person's spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thought of God except the Spirit of God. Now, I just I want you to do a, a little experiment of imagination. I know what I'm about to suggest is impossible, thankfully. Um, but just, just imagine for a moment, I wanted you to really know me, the deepest things about me. Now, I could tell you various things about me. I could do my best to articulate what was really going on in my heart. But your perception would be partial. You would have some idea but uh, you wouldn't really fully know. But now, this is where it gets ugly. Suppose that I could actually put my own spirit, my own soul, my own inner being into you. 
Now, that's where it gets horrid, because then you would suddenly be exposed to all the, the muck and the yuck that was in me. We've all got enough of our own without you having to deal with mine as well. But you get the picture. Suddenly, because my own self was in you, well, you would suddenly know. And it would be a horrid shock. I would have taken up, my own self would have taken up residence in you. But you see, that is what we're talking about here, what, what Paul's talking about with the Holy Spirit. We're no longer in the realm of impossibility, neither are we in the realm of horrible shocks. God's own self, in the person of his Holy Spirit, actually does take up residence in the lives of those who love and trust his son, Jesus. And it's not a horrid shock. Look at verse 12. What in fact we have when the Spirit takes up residence. There, verse 12, it says, We have received the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is where the analogy breaks down. It's not the Holy Spirit suddenly downloads God's all-knowing mind into us. Can you imagine that? That would be a little bit overwhelming, to put it mildly. <laughs> But he makes us to understand and experience all that Jesus' death has secured for us. The forgiveness of our sins, the, the cleansing from shame, the victory over temptation, the adoption into God's family, and everlasting hope. All these things the Spirit gives us knowledge of. Do you want more of this knowledge? I want more of that knowledge. Because it is something we grow into. That's what Christian maturity is about in large part. It's about exploring the dimensions of the love of God expressed and poured out for us historically at the cross. I want to know more of this. So that means I must cry out, as you must, for more of the Spirit. Do you remember Jesus' promise? I think there's no other promise that I turn to more often of Jesus' than this. Luke 11, 13. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Make that verse a regular part of your prayers. Luke 11:13. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You have Jesus' word for it. So ask the Father to give you more knowledge, more knowledge of the historic death of Christ through the personal work of the Spirit within you. And, of course, we're not only talking about intellectual understanding. You can get to a point, you can be a, someone who doesn't believe, and you can explain relatively accurately the, what we call the doctrine of the atonement, you know, how the cross works and so on. You can explain that mechanism well enough and describe different views on it and so on. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about... He's talking about realities, knowing these things to be not just ideas, but realities. That's what the Spirit brings. That's the knowledge that the Spirit brings. And, of course, for all this, we're dependent at all times on the preaching of the apostles. It's only through these writers, Paul, John, Peter, and so on, the other New Testament writers, it's only through them that actually we know anything about the cross. And Paul turns to the role of the apostles next. And... The Corinthians thought the apostles were all about impressing the crowd with their own clever words. But look at verse 13, where Paul basically says, 
It's not, just, it's not just my ideas that come from the Spirit of God. The very words I use come from the Spirit as well. Look, he says there, but he says we express spiritual truths in spiritual words. That's good on, uh, when we've got a, our visitor from the Bible Society, Mel, here. Because that's the Bible. Spiritual truth in spiritual words. It's not just the thoughts that the Spirit of God gives. It's the very words as well through those inspired prophets and apostles, like Paul here, who's speaking to us today down the centuries. And the Spirit is speaking in spiritual words to us through his writing. Really? You say it's how laughable, says, the, says someone. How laughable. You know, this old book in a complex postmodern world where only a fool claims to be certain about anything, let alone the absolute things of eternity and of God. You know, sophisticated people are taught to reject the idea that supreme divine wisdom could be known at all, let alone that it could be found in the message of Christ crucified as proclaimed in the Bible. Well, that's not surprising. It's not surprising that people mock that verse and, and, and in fact stand at it absolutely staggered that anyone should be so stupid as to think it. Look at verse 14. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. They are foolishness to him and he can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So if you, I don't know, you've got unbelieving family or friends or work colleagues or people at school and they think your faith is ridiculous, it's not a surprise. Don't be discouraged by it as though something strange is happening. You know, instead, pray that the Holy Spirit of God will do what only the Holy Spirit of God can do, which is to enter in and to show people. And by the way, Paul is not here, again, denying that a non-believer can sometimes intellectually grasp what Christian teachings are. That, of course, is, is possible and, and happens. Um, but there's an infinite difference between understanding, say, the way the cross brings forgiveness and actually experiencing the joy of being forgiven. Those things are very different. You can explain the mechanism of forgiveness until you're blue in the face, but yet remain unforgiven. It's when the Spirit of God opens our eyes and shows us. So maybe you're not yet a believer and you're grappling with all of this, and you're actually, this is beginning to make you despair. You're thinking, well, what's the point of all my thinking if I can't figure it out by my own reasoning? Well, it's a, it's a good point. I'm glad you raised it. Well, keep on thinking, because it does make sense. But here's the crucial thing. Make it personal as well. It's got to be personal. It has to be personal. You need to ask God to give you his spirit. You need to go to him and say, Lord, Lord, if there is even a sort of a 3% chance that all this is true, or whatever percentage you think might be, please show me by your spirit, open my blind eyes, because at the moment I just can't see it. I can't know it at the moment. Please open my eyes. He'll answer that prayer. He loves to answer that prayer. Seek and you will find. Jesus said that. And then, what about you've been in church for a bit, and you say, well, how do I know? Um, how do I know when the Spirit of God has revealed this to me personally? Um, 
Well, the answer to that is, I think, that you know it because of what Jesus' death on the cross means for you. That is so often the penny-dropping moment. It was for me when I was 14 and for countless other people I can, I've met over the years. It was when it became clear about the cross that suddenly it became, the whole thing came into colour. And once they'd seen it, they'd seen it. Now, a few years ago, um, we visited the Kauri Forest in the north of New Zealand, right at the top of the North Island. Some of you may have visited them. It's beautiful, beautiful trees. And um, one of the trees is so big that it has its own name. There it is, Tanemahuta. The photo does not do it justice. Well, I remember being in the Kauri Forest and looking around, and I was actually quite anxious because Tanemahuta had been built up. I was looking forward to seeing this tree. But I was thinking, oh, they're all big. these are all big Kauri trees. I thought, what happens if I miss Tanemahuta? Will I know if I've seen it? I was getting quite, I mean, it sounds silly, but, you know, I obviously didn't have anything else to worry about that day. <laughs> See, am, am I going to miss it? I don't want to miss this, this wonder. Tiny Mahuta, why don't I get it? And then suddenly we turned the corner, and there was Tiny Mahuta. And there was absolutely no question it was Tiny Mahuta. It was vast. And I knew I'd seen it. I knew it. Absolutely no question whatsoever I knew I'd seen Tiny Mahuta and it's like that with God's wisdom at the cross through this personal revelation of the spirit you just know when you've seen it and it's true the clarity of that vision does waver over time and I believe by God's grace it grows as we grow in Christian maturity and understand more deeply and grow in the wisdom of God that is being taught us by word and spirit but when you've seen it you know you've seen it cross of Christ rips you. Other people, of course, might, might think you've lost it. Don't let that worry you. That's really what Paul's talking about in verses 15 and 16 when he says that they're quite mysterious verses in some ways. But I think basically what he's saying is, he's saying, you know, that people who do not have the Spirit of God, if they judge you, don't worry about it. Their judgment on spiritual matters is actually not to be is, is just not is actually is actually not relevant to your faith at all. You're not subject to the judgment of anyone. That's what Paul seems to mean. See, once you've received the Spirit, once you see the cross for what it is, then you will find yourself thinking in a very very different way from the world, and that way of thinking will, by God's grace, permeate and develop and grow through your life, because something wonderful happens we have look at verse 16 we have the mind of christ we have the mind of christ isn't that extraordinary there the reality that the mind of god father the mind of the spirit who comes in the mind of christ is one and the same mind very powerful statement of the unity of the trinity father son and spirit the same mind that was in jesus is in his people. The same mind that was in Jesus. What was the mind that was in Jesus? The like mind of Jesus who made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, as Paul says in Philippians. So the question for the Corinthians is whether they were acting in accordance with the mind of Christ. Were they growing mature in this true wisdom? Well, next week, Andrew is going to take us into chapter 3, um, and we're going to find out at the beginning of chapter 3 that as things stood, Paul could not address them as mature believers, but actually as infants in Christ. Because they had all the, they were still so imbued with this whole thing about, you know, 
um, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, you know, bickering and arguing. But I want to draw this to a close now. As I do that, I just I want to stress one thing about true wisdom, which is just quite important. It's a sort of broad, big observation about it. And it's this. It is not attained. It can only be received. That is so important. It is not attained. So the Corinthians saw wisdom as a human achievement and therefore something they could boast about. But and you could say the same. They saw maturity as something they attained and something they could therefore boast about. They saw spirituality as something they could attain and therefore something they could boast about. They saw it as something arising from within them that they could say, look what we've got. But Paul says, no, true wisdom, true maturity, true spirituality can only be received through the historic death of Christ by the personal revelation of the Spirit. True wisdom can only be received as a gift. And therefore, true wisdom is incompatible with boasting. It removes, therefore, all reasons for strife and factionalism and all the things that were gripping the Corinthian church. So let's ask God, as we end, God, by his spirit, to give us more of this mind of Christ. Let's pray now. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would give us more of the spirit in accordance with the promise in Luke 11, Give us the Spirit, Father God, and through the Spirit, the mind of Christ, to know and perceive all the things that you have freely given us through the death and the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray.